Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Really interesting to hear about what the market response has been like to some of these uh, uh, malware attacks. And indeed, we are going to take a closer look. It does look like governments and companies around the world are getting the upper hand against this wave of an unrivaled global cyber attack. But there still are some pretty important lessons to be learned uh, from this outbreak to sort of understand what the implications are. Uh, let's bring in Michael Coden. He's head of the cybersecurity practice at BCG Platinian. Uh, that's part of the Boston Consulting Group. He's also associate director of the MIT IC Cubed. Um, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just start with why this is happening now. And are you surprised that an attack like this, which is considered to be the biggest one ever, hasn't happened sooner? A good question, Lisa. Um, it's uh, I think it's happening now only because uh, people were made aware of this latest vulnerability, and uh, the attackers seized on on the opportunity, knowing that a lot of systems have not been patched. They they were made aware. They, they were made aware because of the uh, hack into the U.S. Right into the release of the information of what uh, what the CIA was doing here. Um, it it's possible that you could link those two, but not necessary, because every time Microsoft issues new patches, those patches are the fact that the patches out there is exposing the vulnerability. So if you, you know, the, the lesson here really for, for companies is to install the patches as soon as possible after Microsoft uh, issues them. Once Microsoft issues a patch, both you, the good guys, and the bad guys know that there's a vulnerability, and it's it's a race. If you can patch your system before they can exploit it, that would be great. Uh, the statistics are not in our favor. Typically, once Microsoft issues a patch, within seven days there are malware. Uh, there's malware available to that uh, that exploits that vulnerability. Typically, uh, on the other side, we find that attackers are inside our client systems for up to 200 days um, before they're detected. You know, I was I'm sort of surprised because when I was looking at the way that this attack unfolds, it's sort of the classic don't open anything suspicious because that's how it starts. Right. Correct. <laughs> so and, and then you are actually recommending that people do pay the ransom that they are forced to pay in order to get their files back, because that might be the cheapest way uh, to recover some of their data. Correct. Correct. Um, if you don't have backups, um and you need your data, uh, $300 is not a lot of money. Uh, I hate to say it um, because I don't endorse crime, and I, and I hate to reward the criminals, but uh, you're, you have a, you're in a conundrum. Uh, the, the lesson here on that front is make frequent backups of your data. Make sure that they're um, 
uh, isolated from your your main system, so that you can go and and easily retrievable, so you can go and get them in in the event of the ne- you know the next uh, ransomware attack that that you do get hit by. So, Michael, your clients have they been materially increasing the amount of money that they're putting toward cybersecurity uh, recently, and also do you expect them to only accelerate their expenditures on this front going forward? Uh, I can't talk about our clients, but I can talk about general industry trends. Uh, the the spending on cybersecurity has been increasing uh, substantially, uh, and we do expect to see that going forward. The key here is that boards of directors are now realizing that cybersecurity is a true business risk. It's every much a risk as credit risk is to a bank or uh, the risk of a natural disaster is to a manufacturing facility or an office building. And they're beginning to deal with it as a true business risk. They've elevated it from, oh, just something IT should take care of to something that we have to worry about as a, as a corporation or are an mo- organization. Are most of them, uh, perhaps not your clients, but the people that you talk to who might know something that you can talk about, uh, do you think that people are looking for uh, to, to outsource their cybersecurity or are they looking to beef up their in-house protection? It's a mixture of the two. Um, many or, uh, Most organizations would like to beef up internally, but that gets expensive and there's a huge shortage in the labor force. There's probably a million vacant cybersecurity jobs right now. Uh, so we see a, a very healthy mixture of uh, companies hiring uh, and training and, uh, and, and then outsourcing those things for which they, they need special expertise. Uh, the real key that we see is, is the training. Um, your, your first line of defense in cybersecurity are your employees and the kind of culture they have. The analogy I always give is if you walk into um, an oil company building, whether it's a refinery or an office building, there's mm-hmm. a sign over the door that says 237 days since the last industrial accident. And nobody wants to be the one who sets that counter back to zero. We need the same mentality, the safety mentality, the quality mentality that corporations have built into their cultures. They need to build in the same cybersecurity mentality. Don't lend your password to somebody, and you can't, even though you trust them. Don't click on that email attachment, even though you think it might be an order from a new customer. (laughs) Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We could talk for a long time. This is fascinating. Michael Coden, head of the cybersecurity practice at BCG Platinian, which is part of the Boston Consulting Group. Let us find out what is the latest drama brewing in Washington, D.C. Tulu Alarunapa is following it all for us, our White House reporter uh, for Bloomberg News, who comes to us from the White House. Tulu, gosh, where do we even start? I mean, it's like every day more build on. But uh, I really want to uh, begin with the news of a possible shakeup in President Trump's inner circle. Can you talk about how realistic these rumors really are and what it would mean? Yeah, after the last week that the president had, uh, you might not be too too surprised to hear that he wasn't happy with how the week went, how all of his decisions were covered in the news media and on Capitol Hill with criticism coming from Democrats and Republicans and uh, news analysts looking at how he fired the 
the director of the FBI and all the questions that that raised. So the president is looking at a potential shakeup. We've heard that he's you know considered making some changes. Uh, he said publicly that he's considered changing the way he the way his his operation briefs the press, maybe getting rid of the, the press briefing. Uh, some people are even saying that a couple of his communication staffers could be on their way out the door. Including- Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're sanitizing this, Tulu. Basically, people are thinking that Sean Spicer is out. Uh, and we have heard we've gotten a tweet from President Trump saying that he might issue uh, you know, comments just to send out send out uh, comments rather than have press conferences. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's not clear how realistic that is but he basically is taking the uh, taking it a bit hard that a lot of the criticism for his press uh, officials uh, has come every time they've made a statement that's been count- contradicted by the president himself or by the facts uh, he's saying that instead of you know expecting them to be perfectly accurate maybe we'll just put out uh, a paper statement with all of the facts correct and see how the media likes that i don't know if he'll actually will follow through on that but he is looking at some some changes in his communication shop and even higher, even his chief of chief of staff and uh, chief strategist, uh, Rance Priebus and uh, Steve Bannon are people who have been uh, reported reportedly on the chopping block and potentially could be um, have their positions changed or could be on their way out the door in the White House. Why? I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand. They were not, from what I have read, uh, behind the decision to fire uh, James Comey as head of director of the FBI, as director of the FBI, um, at least not in the past two weeks. So what would be achieved by getting rid of them? Yeah, it's hard to know what's in the president's head as he as he mulls over these uh, staffing decisions. But I think one thing that we've seen is that, that the president has been surprised by the blowback on a number of different things that he's done. Everything from the first round of health care, which struggled to get through the House, to uh, this issue with, with Jim Comey. The president is a, a newcomer to Washington, and he's hired people like uh, like Priebus, who are supposed to know the ins and outs and know how uh, how things might be received. And I think the fact that he was surprised by so many different things is one reason that he's questioning uh, his chief of staff and his top officials about how well they're preparing him for, you know, for potential blowback when he makes some of these decisions. And he seems to be blindsided by the fact that, you know, they're not going to go over too well in Washington. So uh, that may be one of the things that he's considering. And you have to remember that he's, uh, as he has, he's focused so much on loyalty. uh, These are people who have come into his orbit in the last year or so, whereas he has his daughter and son-in-law who have been much closer to him for a much longer time. Since birth. Um, I do want to ask you about a comment that former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, said yesterday in a televised interview. Uh, He thinks that our, quote, institutions are under assault and, quote, by both other nations, such as Russia and by the president. Can you explain what that means? And if if he is right, uh, what the implications are? Yeah, that was quite a statement coming from the former director of national intelligence. I think he was uh, definitely focusing on the fact that uh, President Trump has called into question the intelligence agencies. He's called uh, news accounts to be fake news if he doesn't like them. He's even questioned whether Russia was a uh, a factor in the election, and that's something that all the intelligence agencies have um, have concluded was the case. So I think uh, the fact that the president is questioning so many of our our institutions, from the intelligence agencies to the media, that's caused uh, a number of people who 
see the value of these institutions to wonder whether or not um, some real lasting damage is being done to them when you have the you know the highest official in the land uh, questioning you know whether they have any value and and deciding to sort of um, you know go against some of these institutions even institutions like the FBI by dismissing the director of the FBI in such a sort of embarrassing way that he did, uh, and as, which seemed to happen kind of uh, like a spur-of-the-moment decision, uh, those types of things, those types of institutions and norms are being thrown out the window right. by the president, and I think that's what uh, Clapper was talking about. Can I just ask about the tapes that has been, have been speculated about that President Trump may have taped some of his conversations uh, with former FBI Director James Comey? Do you really think from the talks that you've had with people uh, who have a better sense of the matter, are there really tapes? I would highly doubt that there are tapes of these conversations, that there is a secret taping recording system within the White House. I think this is more sort of the president blowing off steam and trying to change the news cycle and make a veiled threat at the FBI director after some stories had come out about what the FBI director was thinking and saying. And right. I think the White House isn't isn't saying much about this, but I don't think that the president has installed a taping system within the White House. If he has, that would be a major scandal, and we'll definitely hear more about it. Tulu, thank you so much, as always, for bringing us this news. Tulu's Olarunipa is our White House reporter at Bloomberg News and comes to us from the White House. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. We hear a lot about political turmoil in Washington, uh, whether it's the firing of James Comey as the head of FBI or potential turnover in President Trump's inner circle. At what point will some of these developments bleed into the market complacency that has led to a kind of melt up of stocks and riskier bonds? David Dietz perhaps has some answers. David Dietz is founder and president and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, which oversees $282 million in Summit, New Jersey. David, thank you so much for joining us. So let's start there. At what point does the political issues that are painted with such inflamed rhetoric uh, in newspapers across the world, at what point will that bleed into the market? Yeah, that's a great uh, question, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on. Certainly, we see that as a critical risk, which leads into our fundamental caution on the stocks right now. We saw a tremendous ramp up in stocks post-election as investors priced in the pro-growth Trump agenda. Um, then, of course, we saw with the first failure to repeal the ACA, um, 
doubt starting to creep into uh, Trump's ability to push that agenda forward. Now, of course, with uh, the firing of James Comey and other issues, you start to wonder whether there will be so much distraction on ancillary issues that the Washington will not be able to focus on any of the pro-growth items that have caused such enthusiasm on the part of investors. Having said that, you know, clearly it's not just enthusiasm over the Trump agenda, which is forcing stocks higher, ironically enough, or not ironically enough, overseas stocks that actually outperformed the United States this year. Hopefully, they don't think it's all about the, the, the Trump agenda. If anything, the Trump agenda would have curtailed some um, cross-border trade. So, obviously, there are other cross-currents. I think we're seeing them today. I think the fact that China is taking some leadership here in terms of global trade also is providing a boost to this market. Well, so let's talk about China and the fact that they have come out and tried to present themselves as the new global leader replacing the United States uh, in the wake of some turmoil and protectionist-type rhetoric uh, in the U.S. Do you, from your fund-managing expertise, do you plan on investing more in China as a result of this move? Um, China, per se, we think it's actually fully valued. Um, we're, but we like ancillary plays based on, in effect, uh, growth initiatives that are put forth by China. Um, the so-called one road, one belt would increase trade trade dramatically with Europe. Um, so we are investing in Europe and tilting in that direction. Why would that be? First of all, uh, earnings projections going forward are actually stronger than the United States. Uh, they are a major trader with Asia, including China. Um, and also the valuations, significantly less. One of the challenges to the U.S. market is this near 19 times forward earnings. But in Europe, that's closer to 15 times forward earnings, and the dividend yields are better. Um, so Europe is is, I think, in a way to take advantage of a uh, the leadership that China is showing on global trade. So uh, one thing that I am thinking about as you speak is that last week, I believe that uh, mutual funds in Europe uh, focused on equities in that region received their biggest weekly inflow ever. So it's not as though uh, people are ignoring European stocks, and yet you're saying that they're still not fully valued. Um, are there particular areas in European stocks that you think have greater value? values and others? Well, Lisa, first of all, I would uh, preface my remarks by saying we think industrial sectors, what you're doing is probably more important than where you're doing it from. So, for example, um, whether you're in the energy business versus the tech business is probably more important than whether you're based in Dallas or Paris. So what we like to do is overlay those sectors that we find most attractive with those geographic regions. For us, it would be three key areas, financial, uh, energy, and healthcare. So we're actually beating the bushes, looking for the best opportunities in those areas that are European-based. So uh, one question that keeps coming up is, are we just seeing a continuation of the there is no alternative trade? In other words, because interest rates are so low and continue to be, uh, and and as central banks continue to buy bonds around the world, uh, are stocks simply as high as they are because of this? And could a material increase in benchmark rates in the U.S. disrupt this and cause a pretty big sell-off in stocks? Do you think that's realistic? 
Well, it's yes and yes, really, Lisa. I mean, the the, the reason they continue to be bullish, notwithstanding higher than normal valuations, not notwithstanding you know some distressing news on the political front, is you still got that ten-year Treasury below two point four percent. So endowments, pensions, individuals trying to finance kids' education, retirement, still saying that's just not enough. So every time there's a perceived opportunity pullback, I think people are going to continue to push into stocks. So that's the bullish case. And that's why, frankly, it's even more bullish in Europe because interest rates are that much lower, even though stock valuations have higher yields. Um, so uh, c- could that upset the apple cart if interest rates went significantly higher? Absolutely. Um, there's nothing that makes the present value of any type of investment more uh, more valuable if interest rates go higher. Uh, the one silver lining might be if they're going higher because of stronger economic growth, that's probably better than a stagflation inflation situation, which is driving interest rates higher. So I'm looking at a 10-year Treasury yield of 2.34% right now. How high does that yield have to go before people start taking their money out of stocks and going back into uh, government bonds? You know, I don't think there's any one tipping point. And of course, even to back that up is I challenge anyone to figure out exactly where interest rates are going to be one year from now. That's a very complicated topic. Assuming they go higher, I think at the margin, that will reduce enthusiasm for the so-called Tina trade. But to the extent that people are saying, well, that's because everyone's going out to buy a new house, um, new projects are getting off the drawing boards and being built, so they're borrowing money, that can help offset that gradual drift up in interest rates. David Dietz, thank you so much for joining us. David Dietz is a founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, which is based in Summit, New Jersey, talking about industrials uh, as well as gas companies. Some of his uh, stock picks are Chevron, GlaxoSmithKline, and AIG. a lot about small businesses in the U.S. since they do uh, provide such a big uh, part of the growth in this country. Uh, But just how dire is the situation for small businesses? We hear a lot of rhetoric and here to uh, put some reality to it, uh, to it all is Karen Mills, senior fellow at Harvard Business School uh, in Boston. She also was the uh, former small business administrator for President Obama uh, from 2009 to 2013. Karen, uh, it's terrific to have you in the studio here in uh, Bloomberg's 1130 studios. Let's just start with the state of U.S. small businesses today. We hear so much about them struggling to gain the same kind of traction as larger businesses, and yet it seems like credit is fairly free-flowing. What's the disconnect here? What What is sort of the health here? Well, it's always important to talk about the health of small business because half the people who work in this country own or work for a small business. So I used to say I went to sleep at night worrying about half the jobs. So even in a robust economy, which is what we've been having, you have to keep your eye on the ball. You can't um, take your foot off the gas for small businesses or you will have a slowdown and it can happen quite quickly. Right now, we're a little worried about that slowdown because the recent optimism indexes all showed a few sort of glitchy moments. And They don't believe, small businesses now don't believe, that pumped-up economy that came from the early Trump bump in the fall 
is really going to be maintained and maybe their business will go down. Well, and when you talk about the optimism readings, what's the practical implication of a decline in optimism among small business operators? Well, when small business operators are concerned about the future, they don't hire more people, they don't invest in their business, they don't expand, and the kinds of job creation that you might otherwise see from them slows down. And that can actually have a pretty big effect because the Main Street businesses, um, you know, we don't think about them as the innovation drivers of the next Google, but they actually create a huge amount of the jobs. So what does the current administration need to do to uh, bolster optimism among these business owners, uh, as well as provide a more supportive backdrop for them? Well, if I were in Washington today and I saw this and the president was going off on a foreign trip, I would get all of the domestic folks in the White House or in Congress and I would hatch a small business piece of legislation. You know, the Small Business Growth Act of 2017. She's even naming it for you. (laughs) Absolutely. And everything has a name in Washington. And, you know, you could fill it with some tax credits. Small businesses love tax credits. And you (laughs) don't have to wait until some big piece of legislation goes through. You can do some things to reduce regulation and signal to the small business owner that uh, Washington has their back. So how bipartisan would something like that be? Well, it would be very bipartisan. Small business is the holy grail. If you look at um, what people can agree on, The first is the military. Right behind it is small businesses. And I found in Washington, uh, we were able to pass a lot of small business legislation because people, congressmen, go home to their districts and they see the small business owner and they hear from them. So whether they're Republican or Democrat, they feel this sensibility and they want to do something for their small business owners. So why isn't there more of a push to do something like what you just said uh, as President Trump uh, disembarks for uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, he's going to be away. Why aren't they doing something like this? You know, the notion that small businesses are so critical to the economy is actually kind of new in Washington because small businesses don't have great big lobbyists and people watching out for them. They're busy. They're just home doing their business. So this time I spent in Washington, one of the things I'm the most proud of is that um, the position was made a cabinet-level position, and small business really had a voice at the table. But sometimes um, the macroeconomists and others don't get around to putting small business at the top of the action items. And I think that's a mistake. I think we're really missing the boat here, particularly at a time where it could bring people together and kind of keep our whole democracy and our whole economy on a more positive footing. So uh, last week, we had a former small business uh, administrator for uh, former President Bush, George W. Bush, uh, and he was Hector Barreto, and uh, he blamed some of the distraction that we've been seeing from the firing of James Comey, uh, the former FBI director, as well as some other things that have gotten a lot of attention in the press. And he said that this distraction is what's sort of keeping legislators from getting things Done. I mean, do you see that as the reality that basically as long as we continue to discuss the FBI uh, dust up as well as uh, the Russia investigation, there's going to be uh, just absolute lack of action from Washington? Well, I think that's letting politics get in the way of facts. 
You know, the reality is that there are lots of people in Congress who want to do something good. We need leadership both in the White House and in the Republican and the Democratic Party to decide that they do want to work together on something. And small business would be a likely candidate for that if they decide they want to work together. This is a place where they know they can find common ground. So um, you were talking about rolling back certain parts of Dodd-Frank or at least allowing it to be a little bit easier. Uh, How would that help small businesses? Well, one of the first things there where there's bipartisan agreement on Dodd-Frank is to do something about small community banks. And here we see with the advent of fintech, community banks have figured out that they really need to serve the small dollar loans to the smaller customers. And, you know, Surprisingly enough, these very small rural banks are getting innovative and they're competing with the fintechs. So making it easier for uh, for them to do that and taking away some of the gobbledygook. They have seven federal regulators who are all telling them um, how to categorize their loans and what to do about their third-party arrangements. And sometimes the guidance is conflicting and they don't know what to do. So these people want to comply. I do think we can make it easier for them to do it. Real quick, is there one other provision that you think could be changed or tweaked to make things easier for small businesses? Well, I do think we need small business borrower uh, disclosures. We have a very vibrant, innovative new fintech uh, community. They've put out uh, loans to some businesses who couldn't get loans before, but sometimes they charge a lot of money, and sometimes small businesses can't see exactly what they're paying. So I think protecting a small business owner with some disclosure, that would be appropriate. Thank you so much for joining us. Karen Mills is a senior fellow at Harvard Business School. She also was the former small business administrator under uh, former President Obama from 2009 to 2013, talking about how perhaps congressmen should get together while President Trump is on his global trip and try to pass some uh, real material changes for small businesses to drive forward uh, this growth. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.